0: Welcome to this week's podcast. This is Gavin Ralston. Uh, We're adopting a slightly narrower perspective on markets than we usually do this week. Uh, We're going to focus on emerging markets equities. And our guest is Tom Wilson, head of Emerging Markets Equities. I say the focus is narrower, but emerging economies are now 60% of global GDP. So this is hardly a niche subject and events in China, which we'll talk about, are becoming more and more influential on global markets. But staying with the developed markets for a moment, there was some calming last week of three political hotspots, the UK, Hong Kong and Italy. The probability of a no-deal Brexit in the UK has fallen, leading to a recovery in sterling to a six-week high. In Hong Kong, uh, Carrie Lam, the chief executive, withdrew the controversial proposal, which would have allowed extradition to mainland China. And Italy formed a government which did not include Mr. Salvini and did not require an election. On the economic front, there was a mixed bag. The US employment number for August was released on Friday. It was weaker than the markets expected, but at the same time, there was stronger service sector data the previous day. European data, as we've discussed in recent calls, has remained weak. There was also better news on Thursday on the restarting of US-China trade talks, which led to a recovery in trade-sensitive markets like Japan and Korea. But overall, against this background, markets have become a bit more friendly to risk. So global equities rose about 2% in the last week, and bond yields have also risen from their lows. So in the US, we're now up about 15 basis points from the recent low of 147 at 10 years. Gold has also come off a bit. Nonetheless, money continues to flood into bond funds. The number year to date uh, is up to about 450 billion US dollars but tom turning to you emerging markets equities have been weaker since april when the trade war uh, restarted uh, even though us bond yield and us short rates have fallen uh, there's obviously a tension here between the trade war on the one hand which can't be good for emerging markets and global liquidity on the other which should be how do you resolve that tension in the way you're constructing portfolios
1: hmm. uh, the trade flow has disrupted or uh, well, the trade war sorry has disrupted trade flow globally However, equally important is the creation of policy uncertainty globally as the US has taken a more assertive stance in foreign policy and in trade. And that's hit corporate confidence, which has hit investment and hiring plans. And that's contributed, obviously, to the deterioration in global economic conditions that we've seen. So as a result of that, we've seen a central bank pivot to a more dovish stance, uh, most importantly by the Fed. And that creates the opportunity for emerging market central banks to ease policy. However, ongoing policy uncertainty relating to the trade conflict, in addition to recession fears, means that the US dollar may be more resilient as a function of safe haven flow. And so to a certain extent, that impairs transmission in emerging markets where a weak dollar would naturally be supportive of financial conditions. Having said that, um Fed easing clearly is positive and we have already seen certain emerging market central banks cut rates.
0: We'll come back to China more specifically in a moment, but talk to us about the other Asian markets which are caught up in the wake of the trade dispute. I'm thinking of places like Taiwan, Korea, Malaysia.
1: Yeah, I mean China is a large import market for those economies and supply chains are very interconnected. So the trade conflict has impacted Um, Chinese uh, export opportunity, and also it's contributed to weaker economic conditions within China. So that impacts both the export of tertiary goods and intermediary goods from Asian countries into China. And so as a result, the impact of the US-China trade conflict is very pan-Asian. Um, So as a result of that, in combination with the generally weak global economic environment, export data from Asian economies is itself weak.
0: And the other factor in play here will be the depreciation of the Chinese currency, the RMB, against other economies which tend to use a much closer link with the US dollar.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the RMNB is quite a big deal in terms of the recent um, depreciation. So the re-escalation and the trade conflict... Um, led China effectively to step away from supporting their currency. And so over the last quarter, the renminbi depreciated by getting on for 4%. Now, that in itself is not a problem. But that depreciation does raise questions about the extent to which the Chinese government would be prepared to weaponize the renminbi. And the Rumnimbi could potentially, as a result of that, maybe see a large managed depreciation, which would be a part of the trade conflict. Now, in addition to that, um, a scale of depreciation of the Rumnimbi, such as we've seen, could drive expectations of further depreciation, which could trigger rising efforts to circumvent capital controls and for domestic investors to, in offshore capital. Now, either of the above... Um, could be disruptive to growth um, and to markets because Asian currencies in particular would depreciate in sympathy with the renminbi if you were to see a marked depreciation and for China a depreciating RMB, you know it, it's okay China is internally funded it's got a current account surplus it's got positive net foreign assets of some scale but some other Asian currencies are in a less robust position so if their own currencies depreciate in sympathy with the RMB, it would cause issues for some Asian economies
0: so an unmanaged depreciation of the RMB from here would be bad news in general for emerging markets. Absolutely. So let's turn to the Chinese stock market itself. China's now, I think, 32%, 33% of the total emerging markets universe. And also you've had the addition of A shares to the MSCI indices in the last 12 or 15 months. What's your
1: position in China relative to the benchmark? Mm, So we're neutral China at the moment. Um, So the economy is currently relatively weak, uh, but valuations are reasonable. And actually, more recently, we've been finding companies that we, we have wanted to add to um, in relation to A shares, um, clearly, as we move through this year, um, you've seen A shares going up in the bench, um, but they tend to be relatively expensive. Um, so on average, A shares trade at a give or take 30% premium um, to the H share market. And that's really because you have captive money um, in China as a function of the closed capital account. So we look at any stocks um, in China, A or H, on an equal basis with a firm focus on the fundamentals. Um, and so we do often find A-share relatively expensive versus H. Having said that, um, it's a large universe. We have a large analyst body focused on um, the A-share space. We do find attractive investment opportunities, and we currently have four A-share companies in the emerging market core portfolio.
0: And how does the weighting, how does your weighting in A-shares compare with the index weighting, which I know is only two three percent?
1: It's slightly over, but not materially okay. so.
0: So let's move to the other end of the emerging market spectrum, to another economy that's been in the news, Argentina, um, which has gone through a classic cycle of uh, calling in the IMF and then having to resort in the last 10 days or so to capital controls. Argentina is obviously in itself not a big deal, but is there a danger of contagion effects
1: Yeah, there is. I mean, Argentina is obviously seen as um, a canary in a coal mine, so to speak, um, because it's uh, effectively one of the weakest economies structurally um, in the emerging space. Um, So it is seen as an indicator for, for example, a deterioration in dollar liquidity or a deterioration in global risk appetite. Now, in this particular recent case, the trigger for Argentine stress was actually more political because it was, in effect, a rejection by voters of President Macri's economic agenda. In effect, they rejected the pain associated with um, economic um, reform. So it's not necessarily a marked indicator of um, deterioration and dollar liquidity at this point in time. It's more related to that political dynamic changing, because Macri is very likely to lose the upcoming elections. But having said that, clearly there is still a degree of contagion via different routes. So Number one, it might make debt investors think twice about just how attractive spreads are at the riskier end of the emerging market debt spectrum. So that's point one. Point two, it might lead to forced selling in other emerging market debt markets because liquidity has deteriorated markedly in Argentina. So if you need to manage a redemption or you need to scale back risk in your portfolio, you might have to do it elsewhere. And in addition to that, from an economic standpoint, it does have an impact on trade in Latin America as well. So, you know, as, Argenti- as Argentina has, has shrunk, its important, um, importance as an export destination has been reducing. Um, but clearly, deterioration in Argentina's growth um, does uh, drag on Latin trade um, generally.
0: And does do recent events in Argentina, do they cause you to change your view in Brazil in particular, which is obviously a much bigger component of the index?
1: No, I mean, it's caused a degree of near-term pain. Um, I mean, Argentina is an important trade partner for Brazil. Um, it was around about sort of 8% of Brazilian exports. It's now down to three. Um, so in effect, there has been a material drag from its economic deterioration. But a lot of that's already been seen um, in effect. Um, Brazil, we orientate more really to what's happening in terms of the government's own reform agenda um, and most importantly in relation to that um, pension legislation.
0: And the other piece of news recently on Brazil has, of course, been the the fires on the Amazon Basin and the international pressure on President Bolsonaro to do something about them. Is is that a factor that's affecting the stock market
1: or the currency? Yeah, it has affected sentiment. Um, I mean, Bolsonaro has responded to international outcry over the Amazon fires. Um, And so that, to a certain extent, has um, sort of moderated concern about him having a more assertive stance. But again, one focuses much more on the government's own reform agenda. So we've got pension reform, which should be legislated in October, maybe November. And that was absolutely critical to address um, fiscal sustainability um, for Brazil. And pension legislation anchors the yield curve because it addresses that fiscal sustainability. It's already enabled the central bank to cut rates. It's um, going to be positive for corporate confidence, the final legislation. And therefore, you should see an acceleration in growth in 2020, which thereby creates a better earnings environment um, for companies uh, in the Brazilian market. And so actually, Brazil as a function of that is one of our key overweight markets. So the messaging
0: in Brazil is quite clearly that the reality of Bolsonaro's economic policy is much better than markets expected when he was first elected.
1: Um yeah, but he's always outsourced economic policy to Paulo Guedes, and Paulo Guedes um, has been the architect. Um, I mean, obviously, you had pension legislation running through under Temer, um, but Guedes um, has taken it and 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 put forward um, a more aggressive pension legislation with greater savings than there would have been under Temer, which is positive. And in addition to that, um, you've got potential um, fiscal reform. Um, you've got efforts to address. Um, uh, red tape. Um, you've got ongoing privatization. You've got a desire to crowd in the private sector and so on. So Bolsonaro, as I mentioned, has given Paulo Geddes a lot of flexibility on the economic reform side um, and Geddes is using that flexi- flexibility to good effect.
0: Okay. Well, let's turn to a couple of the markets which have got structural problems, which tend to suffer when global markets come under stress. And I'm thinking of South Africa and Turkey. What's your views on both of those?
1: Yeah, I mean, South Africa is a classic twin deficit market. So large current account, large fiscal deficit as well. And it's also got structural issues in relation to um, labour market rigidities um, and skills shortage, weak education, and so on. And then in addition to that, um, I'm sure people have read about ESCOM, so the extent to which the state utility is underinvested and badly managed. And we have seen brownouts, which clearly impede um, growth. So there's a lot to be done. And the issue here is really how quickly Ramaphosa can undertake reform, because there is the intent but Ramaphosa, in effect, is struggling against a faction in the ANC, which represents the old way of doing business, in effect, a sort of, you know, Zuma-related, more corrupt faction. So the ANC itself is not unified. And that anti-Ramaphosa faction know that they can harm Ramaphosa's credibility by slowing the reform effort. Now, so far, as a result of that, the pace of reform has been disappointing versus expectations. And uh, the equity market doesn't really have valuations, which we think sufficiently reflect that. So we're actually underweight. Now, in relation to Turkey, um, here we don't have much optimism around the policy front. You have seen unorthodox policy, which has driven economic deterioration. But you have seen significant weakness in the currency, And now the currency is cheap and it's driving an adjustment in the external accounts. So you have a situation whereby you could see currency stability, you could see as a function of that inflation moderate, and that gives the central bank the ability to cut rates. So on a near term basis, you have a potential trading opportunity in Turkey as a function of that dynamic, because in combination with that, the equity market is cheap. So currently we have a moderate overweight in Turkey.
0: Okay, so um, let's turn now to India. Uh, Investors tend to bracket China and India together as the the two big growth opportunities in uh, emerging markets. But if you look at recent returns, India's been very disappointing at a time when China's done uh, relatively well. The economy's also been quite weak. I saw a statistic today that car sales are down some like 40% year on year. There was a lot of optimism about the reform program in Modi's first term. Uh, Is that optimism now fading?
1: Um, to a certain extent. Um, the first term was very orientated towards reform. The second term so far has been more nationalist in in orientation, um, with less uh, sort of clear reform efforts on the economic side. And there's still a lot to be done. Um, so clearly, India has the potential to grow meaningfully from a very low base. Um, but it could grow faster than it currently is. It still has big issues in terms of land availability. It still needs a lot of reform in relation to the labour market. It's got clear issues of of red tape, um, which impede growth uh, as well. So there is a lot more for the government to do. Now, from a market side, um, and actually from a near-term economic side, you're seeing a degree of pressure. So what's happened is that you've seen um, non-bank financial companies, or MBFCs, which have seen an issue with their wholesale funding model as a result of a deterioration in um, effectively the real estate credit cycle. Now, their funding's been impaired, therefore the credit extension has been impaired, and therefore, given the fact that they were an important part of credit extension to the economy, the economy has seen a downdraft as a function of that. So, that's driving um, sort of near-term deterioration in economic um, conditions. Now, in response, you've seen a bit of monetary easing, but the government's quite constrained on the fiscal. Now, in relation to the market, the market always looks very expensive. So, you have good medium-term structural growth opportunity, but it's priced in. And you want to be careful of an environment where you have highly valued companies – with negative earnings revisions. And currently, you do have negative EPS revisions as a function of that economic downdraft that we have discussed. So as a result of that, we are currently underweight the market. It's one of our main underweight markets. So sending a note of caution on India,
0: let's try and pull the overall picture together. One of the key stories in developed markets this year has been the huge outperformance by quality companies and corresponding underperformance by value is is the same phenomenon visible in emerging
1: yeah very much so so i mean quality and growth has obviously outperformed value um, that's the same um, and actually we do believe that will continue to Um, persist. So in effect, investors have looked in an environment of rising uncertainty and in clearly very low discount rates or falling discount rates towards quality and growth. And given the deteriorating economic conditions, they've shied away from the value side of the market, even though it is already really quite cheap. Now, In emerging at Schroder's, we are style agnostic investors, Um, so we do look across the different style um, buckets. Um, We currently have a bias to quality and growth, and we've had that for some time. Now, having said that, we are very conscious of the cheap valuations in the value cyclical part of the market. Now, where we have some visibility on an inflection point in earnings or returns, we're happy to allocate to value, to value cyclical. Where we don't, we are more cautious, even though the valuations are cheap and even though those valuations, in effect, are pricing in really quite a stressed um, earnings environment. But, as I mentioned, ongoing focus and the value part of the market, always uh, looking in that area for specific opportunities. And also conscious of the potential catalysts that could drive a, a more meaningful Um, value rally. So they would be, for example, uh, we think a more concerted move away from monetary stimulus globally towards fiscal. Uh, They would involve, for example, maybe a more aggressive Chinese stimulus than we currently expect. Um, And also they would involve potentially a clear resolution of the trade conflict.
0: And can I just ask you finally about two of the big growth names, which Uh, have tended to be in most emerging markets portfolios for the last few years, and those are Tencent and Alibaba in China. I think they make up close to 10% of the emerging markets index. Um, You've done very well out of those in the past. Do you still have a positive view of them?
1: We do, uh, and actually we've recently lifted our active loads in both stocks. So we still think they offer um, attractive structural growth. Um, Having said that, we're clearly conscious about the potential impact on um, the company's growth, um, because for a long time, you've been benefiting from the structural growth side. Um, but equally, the more you get to a higher level of penetration for um, for digital, um, you need to be aware of the cyclical impact um, that might come in at a later stage. Because what often happens with um, growth companies is that the multiple is sustained until you see some sort of meaningful earnings disappointment. And then you get the negative EPS revision in combination with a multiple derating as well. So always in the growth part of the market, you need to um, really focus on ensuring that it's possible that growth is sustained. And if you think there's some risk, then you need to start getting careful.
0: Great. Tom, thank you very much indeed. We're going to have to draw this conversation to a close, but thank you for such an extensive tour of the world. I guess the points I would pick out from what Tom was saying, obviously a lot of uncertainty over China and the trade wars, that's going to affect not just China itself, but the, particularly the other Asian markets which are caught up in the, in the skirts of the trade war. Um, two very distinct views that Tom has expressed. One is a positive view on Brazil, given the direction of policy there. And the other is a more negative view in India, where stocks are expensive and the pace of reform has not been as rapid as it might have been. So thank you very much, Tom, again, and thank you all very much for listening.